Matthew chapter 21. It says in verse 1, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them. Bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. Lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt. They laid their clothes on them and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, one-third of the Gospels in the New Testament are devoted to the final week of Jesus' life on this planet Earth. You should immediately ask yourself the question, why does the Holy Spirit of God devote in the revelation of God so much to these final, final days of Jesus? And the answer in part is because Jesus is God's solution to the problem of sin. It points to the necessity and the importance of Jesus' death on the cross. Jesus will take away sin. Jesus will relieve grief. Jesus will bring about comfort. In Matthew's chapters 21 through 27 records the rejection of the king. Jesus will meet his enemies that will lead up to his crucifixion. And the passage begins with the king's claim. And then it continues with the king's coming. It's interesting to me. The last week of Jesus' life begins on Sunday. With preparation in verse 1. Followed by prophecy in verses 4 through 5. And then it concludes with a parade in verses 6 through 11. The final journey of Jesus will be filled with humility. Prophetic fulfillment. Obedience. Destiny. From Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday, like I said, has traditionally been called Holy Week and for good reason. 
On the first day of the week, Sunday, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, fulfilling an ancient prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. The crowds welcome him with shouts of Hosanna, lifted from the book of Psalm. In Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26, Jesus is given the title, Agent of the Lord, the coming King of Israel. It's Sunday. Jesus has made his way from Jericho up that ancient path. He climbs the steep embankment on the Roman road and he comes to the crest of the Mount of Olives. Behind Jesus is a spectacular view of the desert of Judea and in front of him is Jerusalem. Down below him there's this steep valley called the Kidron. And there's this magnificent temple in front of him. And the top of the temple is made of pure layered gold. And it shines with a glowing roof. In the final days, Jesus on Monday in verses 10 and 11 will clear the temple of money changers. We see that in Mark chapter Matthew 21, 10 through 17 and Mark 11, 15 and Luke 19, 45. Sunday is going to lead to Monday. There's going to be a time of controversy and parables. As you make your way into the week and Wednesday and Thursday, there's going to be a final Passover meal that will be, will be given a brand new meaning. Betrayal by a friend, desertion by friends. It's going to culminate in arrest, a series of trials, imprisonment, beating, condemnation. Jesus will carry a cross to the place called Golgotha, in Aramaic, the skull. He'll be crucified between two prisoners. His body will be placed in a tomb until the most meaningful event of all human history will shock and disturb some, but provide proof that Christ's offer of forgiveness is real, of redemption is real, and reconciliation is real. And for some of you, this week is going to seem rather mundane. It's going to be rather ordinary. Some of you are going to carry on your week like you normally do. You'll get up like on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. But for some of you, the week will be filled with deep reflection, prayer, and meditation as you consider the final days of your Savior. The choice that Jesus makes in his final week is very intentional. It's very deliberate. It's very purposeful. He's going to suffer and die for you. He's going to rise from the dead for you. He's going to make a way for friendship and fellowship, cleansing and forgiveness for you. Long before you ever thought of him. He thought of you. And you might be wondering, how is that possible? How is it even remotely possible? But in a very real way, history will give way to mystery. Because God became a man and dwelt among us. And there was never a moment, there was never a moment, there was never a moment when he didn't think about you. Let's walk with him on the journey. 
Look at verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples. The journey that began that day in Jericho followed the ancient road. Like I said, he comes to the Mount of, of Olives on the east side. I've been there 14 times. I'm hoping that one day you'll be able to go with me. We make our way to the crest of the hill on the east side. That's where Bethphage and Bethany are located. And from the road that winds south to the Olivet, it dips into the valley of Jehoshaphat. And there again is the brook Kidron. The disciples arrive at Bethphage. And by the way, only here and in the Gospels do we hear about this city. But the place, that whole place is historically significant. And it carries a great Profound meaning. That particular spot, even in Jesus' past, is remarkable for a reason that I'm about to give. And it's going to be remarkable in the future for a reason that I'm about to give. The place was the place where the glory of the Lord departed from Israel. In Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 3, you can see it in chapter 10, verse 4, verses 18 and 19, chapter 11, verses 22 and 23. In Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 23, it says, And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain, which was on the east side of the city, exactly where Bethphage and Bethany were. The glory of the Lord was the visible symbol of God's presence among the people. Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, in part retraces a route as if the Holy Spirit is saying, the glory of the Lord has returned. It left from this place, it's come back to this place, and according to the New Testament revelation, Jesus, when he comes back in glory, will return to that place. It's interesting. He will fulfill prophecy. Look at verse 2. It says, saying to them, go into the village opposite you. Immediately you're going to find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them. Bring them to me. How does Jesus know this? Skeptical scholars, agnostic scholars, unbelieving scholars will say... Well, he made arrangements in advance with the owner of the donkey and the colt because he had this messianic complex and he wanted to make sure that he fulfilled certain uh, Jewish sayings so that people would think that he's the Messiah. But I don't think that's the case at all. Jesus had just arrived. He wouldn't have had opportunity to take time to make those arrangements he knows exactly where the animals are. He knows exactly how the owners will respond. In verse 3 it says, And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. Mark's gospel tells us that is exactly what happened. In chapter 11 of Mark's gospel, in verses 5, 6, and 7, it says, quote, But some of those who stood there said to them, Hey, what are you doing loosing the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus commanded. So they let them go. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it. And he 
sat on it. There is a mother donkey and there is a foal or the offspring. Jesus is going to be riding on the baby donkey, so to speak. And we're given a glimpse of Jesus' foreknowledge, what theologians call his divine omniscience, his ability to see everything completely, totally, without exception. And I'm going to suggest to you that it may have occurred to you that God in his foreknowledge and his omniscience has been following you your entire life. He knew exactly where you would be born and to whom you would be born. He knew exactly how you would grow up. He knew exactly the things that you would experience and the people that you would meet and the relationships that that you would form. God's given us everything so that we could freely enjoy it. But there may come a time when the Lord has need of things. It says the Lord has need of them. There may come a a time in your life where, for whatever reason, God in his grace and his mercy has given you something and the Lord will say, "I I have need of that. More likely is he'll have need of you. And in verse four, look what it says. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. The phrase marries two statements in Isaiah 62, 11 and Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Now, again, in order to sort of have an understanding of what's happening, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, was written in the 6th century B.C., right around 520 B.C., but during the reign of Darius, where it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, it says in Zechariah 9, 9. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. By the way, the prophecy in Matthew, the prophecy in Mark, prophecy in Luke, the prophecy in John, all omit being just and having salvation. And I find that interesting because Jesus is coming. He isn't coming with justice and simply to bring deliverance from political or social or cultural oppression, but he's coming for salvation The Bible says lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now do the math for just a moment. 520 BC. You're going to have to fast forward 100 years, 200 years, 300 years, 400 years, 500 years. The prophet Zechariah is looking through the corridors of time as he sees this appointment taking place. The prediction has to be fulfilled. The claim will in part serve as the basis of the accusation by the religious leaders The prediction is made, the appointment is made, but in the end it's going to result in a cross. So I ask you, does Jesus orchestrate or manipulate behind the scenes in order to fulfill prophecy? 
As a human being, no, but as God, yes. There was never a moment, there was never a time, there was never a moment and there was never a time when God was, wasn't at work, working, preparing, planning in a purposeful way. All of these things. But think about it. Could the human being, Jesus, orchestrate his own virgin birth? I don't think so. Thank God I was born an Italian person. But it was the luck of the draw. Do you think Jesus could have orchestrated being a Jew or the descendant of David? Jesus is going to be betrayed by a friend. That prophecy is fulfilled from Psalm 41.9. The New Testament fulfillment, Matthew 26.14. Over and over again we read, the shepherd will be smitten, the sheep will be scattered, which means deserted by his followers. Jesus will be sold for 30 pieces of silver. He'll be accused by false witnesses. He'll be accused and afflicted. The Bible says, but he didn't open his mouth, Isaiah 53.7. He's despised and rejected, Isaiah 53.3. The Bible piles on the prophecies. He's mocked, he's insulted, he's beaten, he's spat upon, he's struck on the head, he's numbered or crucified with the transgressors. He's lifted up like a snake in the wilderness. He's thirsty during his execution. He's pierced. The soldiers cast lot for his clothes. He's given gall and vinegar, sour wine, the Passover sacrifice with no broken bones. He's forsaken by God, buried with the rich, rises from the dead in fulfillment of the prophecy. Psalm 16:10. You will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not see your faithful or allow your faithful to see decay. Prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. Jesus himself affirms in Luke 24, 44, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. He said that on the road to Emmaus as he was giving them a Bible study, reminding them of the events that would unfold. We can't escape the fact that a supernatural God was orchestrating human history to redeem mankind in the person of Jesus. Fulfilled prophecy provides powerful evidence that the claims of Christ are true, that the claims of the Bible are true. Jesus guides, bends human history not just simply to save mankind. We don't need to be so theologically distant. I think it's time that we started personalizing that. That you're able to say, he did all of this to save me. Now watch, he's instructing his disciples in verses 6 and 7. In verse 6 it says, so the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. This should shock you right here. The disciples obey him. Now you laugh, but as you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as you read the adventures of Jesus, as you read the stories of Jesus in the Bible, has it been your experience that the disciples often obey? No. But they did this time. They obey. They do exactly what Jesus asks them to do. 
Now, again, I want you to think about this for just a moment. In spite of uncertainty, in spite of what's about to happen, they obey him. Now, can you imagine? He sends the disciples and they obey him. But can you imagine you're going, hey, go over here, get this. But what if he's wrong? What if Jesus is wrong? What if they won't cough up the colt? You got to remember in the ancient world, they didn't have an ancient version of Hertz rent a donkey. So how is this going to happen? How is this going to hold up? And sometimes, again, this is exactly what happens in your life. You're sensing that God is speaking to you. You're sensing that God is talking with you. You're sensing that God wants you to do something or go somewhere or say something to someone. And you're wondering whether or not it's true. And you're, you're wondering or not whether or not this is something that the Lord really wants you to do. You might think, well, we... Put yourself in the disciples' place for just a moment. We got to go get the donkey. Do you think they have money in their pockets? I don't think so. Do you think that they have the resources to appropriate a donkey on their own? I don't think so. The only way that they're going to get a donkey is if everything is as Jesus says it is. Again, the disciples don't have a stellar record of obedience, absent doubt, absent questions. But it seems that this is one of those times where they with certainty say, Jesus has asked me to do this and I'm going to do it. Jesus has predicted that everything that he's asked me to do, I'll be able to do. And I think that this is interesting. The disciples obey him. But what if his commands are hard? What if they're hard to understand? What if they're embarrassing? What if Jesus asks me to do something that I, I don't have a complete picture and I don't have a complete understanding of or, and I don't even think I have the resources in order to make it come to pass? What if Jesus' plan is falling apart? I want to ask you a question. Your reading of the New Testament as Jesus is accomplishing what Jesus has always meant to accomplish, do you see his plan falling apart? No. The reason why this becomes important to you is his plan won't fall apart in your life either. He has a plan for you. He's making a way for you. We don't have to doubt Jesus we can trust him and, and obey him. We don't need to question Jesus. But I do, I do question Jesus. Jesus said, he that has my commandments and keeps them, he's the one who loves me. He that loves me shall be loved by my father and I will love him and I will manifest or show myself to him. It says in John 14, 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he's the one who loves me. The Bible makes it abundantly clear. Jesus is absolutely, totally, 100% willing to communicate with you. And in verse 7 it says, they brought the donkey and the colt. 
and they laid their clothes on them and set him on them. Now think about it. The disciples obey Jesus. They honor Jesus. Then they, the disciples lay their clothes on the colt to serve as a kind of a blanket or saddle. Now I'm going to suggest to you that this is an act of homage and respect. It's a way to cooperate with God's prophetic plan. In other words, the disciples find themselves in the zone, so to speak. They're honoring God. They're obeying God. They're submitting to the Lord. They're giving to the Lord what is necessary for the Lord to do in order to accomplish his prophetic plans. Jesus is worthy of our gifts. We give Jesus our best. In the South, they have an expression. You've probably heard it. Why that man would give you the shirt Oh yeah, that's it exactly. He'd give you the shirt off his back. It is in fact an act of worship. When we determine to give Jesus the shirt off our backs. Are you saying Jesus wants my clothes? He won't relent until he has it all. Go say it, say it. He won't relent until he has it all. He won't relent until he has. Does he want your clothes? I'm going to suggest to you, maybe at some point, you need to be very thoughtful about the moment that you decide to give them up. I don't think that that's the point of the passage. He isn't just simply asking for your clothes. He's asking for your life. He's asking for your heart. He's asking for everything that used to be you in the past, will be you in the present, and will be you in the future. All things, and I want you to get this. All things exist to further his prophetic agenda. I want you to think about that for just a moment. That means you exist to further his prophetic agenda. The chair that you're sitting on, the church that you're in, the person who's speaking to you. It is so God has, has done all of these things to prepare for an appointment for you. So that you could hear and know and understand and believe. The king receives homage, not only from the disciples, but from the people. Look what it says in verses 8 and 9. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees. They spread them on the road. Why would the crowd do this? And what does it mean? Placing the clothes on the road to allow the king and the Messiah was a voluntary act of submission. Their coats are under the king and they're willing to submit to their king. The palm branches in Jewish history were reminiscent of a victory by Judas Maccabeus over a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes IV who lived right around 164 BC. Again, when the Jewish people revolted against the Greek king and Judas Maccabeus delivered them when he 
came into the city of Jerusalem, the people cut down palm trees and, or palm branches and they, they spread their coats. It becomes a symbolic act whereby they're saying, we're willing to submit to your leadership. We're willing to submit to your authority. We're willing to admit that you're the king. And note the text. And a very great multitude. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to figure out what that means. That means a lot of people. This is a lot of people. It would appear that the crowd gathered early on Sunday morning. Now, I want you to, again, think about the context. You don't know it from Matthew chapter 21, but if you read in, in John chapter 12, verses 12 through, through 19, you'll discover that during this very time, this is the time when Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. And because Jesus had just earlier raised Lazarus from the dead, there were quite literally thousands of people who had shown up, not just simply to see Jesus, but to see Lazarus. The crowd was so packed and there were so many people that in John chapter 12, verse 17, the Pharisees remarked, the whole world has gone after him. It, and it wasn't a compliment. They're saying all of these crowds have shown up. That means that most of the work that we've tried to accomplish in order to get people to reject Jesus and not love Jesus or, or not care about Jesus doesn't seem to be working. The crowds of disciples were with him in tens of thousands. According to Josephus, it might have even been millions of pilgrims had made their way into Jerusalem during this Passover feast. And then in verse 9 it says, Then the multitudes who went before him and those who followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. What would lead us to believe that the crowds receive him as a king? Well, again, they strip off their clothes, they cut down the palm branches, they spread it before them on the road. Again, an act of honor, an act of homage, an act of submission. But then the crowd starts to chant. If you've been following the political machinations of our country, when crowds gather, they'll pick their candidate and they'll begin to shout the candidate's name. Here, the crowd begins to chant Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. It's going to be cited again in Matthew 23, 39. But in the heart of the psalm is God's promise of the deliverance of his people in verses 13 and 14. Who cry out to him, verses 15 through 21. The deliverance is accomplished and completed. And this is the same psalm, Psalm 118 in verse 22, which talks about the stone that the builders would reject. The one who comes in the name of the Lord, verse 26. The Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The phrase, Psalm 118, verse 25 of Hosanna, transliterates that Hebrew word, Hoshana. Hosanna. It means save now. It's an idiomatic expression, which literally means save me. Do it now. Save me. The phrase, Hosanna in the highest, save me now. 
in the highest invites the earth to join with heaven in praise to God's Messiah. It's the crowd's way of saying, everyone on earth, join with everyone in heaven. Give praise to the Messiah. In Mark's gospel, the crowd shouts, blessed is the kingdom of our father, David, that comes in the name of the Lord. That's Mark 11.10. It would seem that the people anticipated that Jesus is the king and that Jesus is establishing his kingdom, that it's going to happen now, that Christ, the Messiah, is going to sit on David's throne and he's going to redeem them and deliver them, not from their sin, but from political oppression, from social and cultural ridicule. And Jesus allows the people to publicly proclaim him king. He allows the people to proclaim publicly that he's God's anointed. And according to credible scholarship, the date of this entry is Sunday. Nine, Nisan. The ninth day of, in the Jewish calendar of Nisan, A.D. 30. Exactly 483 years after the decree of Artaxerxes, mentioned in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 and 26. I want you to think about this. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. 500 years before the event, predicts the event. Daniel in absolute detail, lays out the appointment. In Daniel chapter 9, the Lord God revealed to Daniel by the angel Gabriel a prophecy. Seventy weeks of days have been set aside for Daniel's people in the holy city. That's Jerusalem. Artaxerxes decrees to rebuild the temple in 445 BC. That's from Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 1. In, in Daniel's... Um, statement in Daniel chapter 9, the Messiah is going to be cut off. It's, it's a word for death. Seven outstanding years would remain. They would be set aside for God's dealing with the Jewish people. The Lord predicts a series and a set of years that will unfold. And Daniel predicts to the very day an appointment that God would have with his people. An appointment when the deliverer would come. And again, it's interesting to me. According to Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, we're told that the Messiah must, number one, finish the transgression, restrain Israel's apostasy. Number two, make an end to sin. That is, judge sin with finality, Hebrews 9.26. And number three, make a reconciliation for iniquity. Furnish the basis for the covering of sin, an atonement of sin. The blood of the Messiah would be cut off and accomplish those things that relate to righteousness. That is, the eternal righteousness of Daniel's people in their great change of centuries of rebellion and apostasy and running from God. This is Daniel's prediction that there's going to come a time where God is going to make a mechanism so that they don't have to run from God, so that they don't, so that they don't have to run away from God. Now, I want you to think about this for just a moment. According to Daniel, 
the Babylonians, the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks and the Romans, all of human history is being molded and shaped all of the events of all of humanity is being molded and shaped to bring this day, this appointment with God's people. Would it be a far-fetched thing to think that God has been orchestrating your life, your mother, your father, your brothers, your sisters, your life, and your circumstances. God has unfolded your life so that you could know him. According to Acts, when Paul is preaching at the Areopagus or, or Mars Hill, he says that God has placed everyone everywhere, not so that they could run from God or hide from God, but so that they would know him and believe him. Some no doubt believe that this procession, this triumphal entry, will result in the king's coronation. But Jesus knows his mission. Jesus knows that the only crown he's going to receive is a crown of thorns. He knows that the only throne that he's going to sit on is a cruel cross. Jesus knows that salvation is always by blood, shed, innocent, applied. Salvation is always through a person. Salvation is always by grace. And so Jesus peeks into the future and he sees you. He sees you. That's what the writer says when he says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And what about you? Earlier in the Gospels, Jesus rejected attempts to make him a king. Now as he approaches the city, not so much to be made king, he is the king, but to be recognized as such, welcomed in Mount Zion, honored and obeyed in the temple, which was his house. But what about you? Are you prepared to shout his name? Are you prepared to honor him as king? Are you willing to submit to his power and his authority in your life? The crowds perhaps have no idea or no desire. They want him to rule in their nation, delivering them from the oppressor, but how many of them really want him to rule in their heart? And how many of you really want that? Have you welcomed Jesus as God's Messiah who's come to save you? The one who was promised, the one who was predicted, the one who was prepared to be the solution, not just simply for the world's problems, but for your problems as well. And in verse 10, it says, and when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, who is this? By the way, I want you to look at verse 10 again. That interesting word in the passage, and when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved. It's an interesting Greek word. It means shaken. 
It means shaken in the sense of disturbed. It means shaken in the sense that there is this excitement, there is this sense that's palpable. Remember the religious leaders that said the whole world has gone after him. The Romans sensed that that they were right on the verge of a riot. And again, if you've been following the current presidential cycle, the news people follow along the presidential candidates because there are supporters and there are protesters and the news wants to know is this going to break out into some sort of full-blown riot the romans think that there might be a revolt the herodians wonder if their political party is about to fragment and fall apart right before their eyes the pharisees are moved and renewed with greater anger and hostility because The people seem to be flocking towards Jesus. And you can imagine that all of that emotion is about to explode within one week. In verse 11 it says, so the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from the Nazareth of Galilee. In verse 11 we're we're told in Mark's gospel... Chapter 11, verse 11, we're told that once in Jerusalem, Jesus will go to the temple. He's not going to go inside of the temple, but he's going to go to that outer court called the stoa or the courtyard where the place where they exchange money for acceptable money for gifts for God. He looks around briefly. He retreats back to Bethany. It's Sunday night. And inside the city, there's a growing excitement. But there's also a certain measure of bewilderment. Those who asked about Jesus were simply told, he's a prophet from Nazareth of the Galilee. I'm going to suggest to you that there were some who believed that he was the Messiah. There were some who were unsure. There were some who didn't know his identity. Because in less than a week, the sentiments and affections of the crowd is going to go from praise to hostility murderous hostility. That Sunday, they were shouting, save us. Within a week, they're going to be shouting, crucify him, crucify him. The Roman leader is going to say, do you want me to put your king to death? And they'll say, We don't have any king except for Caesar. You see, they call him a prophet. My question why in the world won't you call him a king? Why in the world won't you acknowledge that he speaks for God? Why? In the world, won't you acknowledge that he's sent by God? Why in the world won't you believe? We see Jesus has carefully planned all of these events, purposely, deliberately, fulfilling prophecy in verses 2 through 5 intentionally securing the homage of disciples and people in verses 6 and 7 and 8 and 9. Everything has been planned. Everything has been prepared so that you would know him 
and love him and believe him. I'm going to make an outrageous claim. All of human history exists to prepare the world to receive Jesus. But I'm going to take it one step further. Everything in your life, everyone in your life, everything in your life has been prepared and planned by God so that you would know him and love him and believe him, experience his grace and his mercy, his fellowship. Jesus is going to die because the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. Adam and Eve in the garden knew that they were naked and they created clothes of their own making. And the Bible says that God slaughtered an animal and clothed them. There was the shedding of blood and that there was an admission of a covering. All of this in order to secure salvation. By the way, Jesus is an offering. He's a ransom. He's going to deal in mercy with the whole world. But more importantly, he's going to deal in mercy with you. He's going to raise the dead. He's going to make sure that your sins can be forgiven and that you can be justified and that eternal life is available to everyone who believes. The journey begins in a week. It's going to come to an end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we once again, Lord, are so excited. Reality exists to glorify you. History exists to glorify you. Kingdoms and kings exist to glorify you. Nations rise and nations fall. Families come and families go. But we all exist to glorify you. Everything that has a beginning, in the end, will glorify you. And so, Lord, we pray that we could glorify you by believing you, by loving you, by receiving you, by not turning a blind eye or a deaf ear to the invitation to know you and love you. Lord, I pray that each and every person would pray that simple prayer that I believe that Jesus is sent by God, that I believe he died on the cross for my sins to secure grace and mercy, forgiveness and hope, and that I can walk with him in obedience and submission as I call him king. Prepare our hearts, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.